The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. Welcome to Temple Bible Church. Uh, If you look in your bulletin, you'll recognize that we don't have a bulletin this morning. Uh, I just want you to remember some of the announcements that you saw on the video, except that we didn't have a video of announcements this morning. So there's three things that I guess we want you to know. First of all, next week, the 815 service will start again. So for those of you who are for the 1815 service, that'll start next week. Secondly, the men's conference will be at the end of this month, and there's still room. So if you'd like to go to the men's conference, uh, now's the time to sign up. There's still some rooms left, so head out in the hall, and you can sign up there. And then thirdly, if you looked out back, you'll notice that the uh, portables have moved. We are moving forward on building the new building. And as you know, the most permanent part of any building is its temporary portables. So we'll probably be keeping those, but they are moving. So just if you want to prove to yourself that we are actually going to be building the new building, just go out back and you'll notice that the portables have moved and we can thank God that we are going to be getting a new building. My name is Bob Weber, and I have a confession. I used to be prejudiced against Texans. I grew up in the New York, Philadelphia area, so my vision of Texas was very similar to the New Yorker cartoon, where everything is on the East Coast and then Texas is out there somewhere. Uh, Just so you know, uh, this is the view from Stephen's apartment. As he has moved to New York City, this is what he sees when he looks west. For me, growing up, Texas was a very strange place. I mean, uh, Texas had cowboys and horses and guns. Texas had cotton and oil. And of course, as far as we were concerned, J.R. Ewing in Dallas was a documentary. It wasn't until my sophomore year when I was an engineering student at the University of Pennsylvania that my attitude about Texas began to change. I met this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, attractive young lady who was from Texas. She had cowboy boots and a pickup truck. I was telling this story the uh, last hour, and I remembered not only that, But she had a lasso that she had brought to campus and would do rope tricks in the middle of Philadelphia. So here I was beginning to fall for this girl from Texas, and I'm thinking, well, maybe not everything from Texas is strange. Although that was pretty strange. I decided to visit her in San Antonio, and sure enough, she picked me up at the airport. It was 105 degrees outside when I got to the airport, and We get in her pickup truck, and it was kind of just what I expected. Texas was kind of nice. I liked being with Patty Lynn. We drove up to her house, and her brothers were sitting on the front porch in overalls with no shirt, cleaning their shotguns. (laughs) But I kept my eyes on Patty Lynn, and I realized Texas isn't a bad place. So I've been here for the past 30 years. My kids are all from Texas. So I guess you could say in some ways I am a Texan. One of the things I realized after living here for a while is that the 
Prejudice goes both ways. I once had a rancher ask for a different surgeon because I was a Yankee. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a patient and asked her if she'd ever been out of the country, and she was very proud and said, yes, I've crossed the river and went to Oklahoma. (laughs) Our tendency to see the world through prejudiced eyes is kind of what we're going to talk about today when we look at the story of Philip taking the gospel to a new place when we look at Acts chapter 8 today. Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you do talk to us. You reveal yourself to us in a very personal way. So Lord, I pray that we would look at your word. And I pray that my words would be quickly forgotten. But that your words would be written indelibly on our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever watched a television show that has two parts? And when you start the second part, it always starts with previously on fill-in-the-blank. It's been over a month since we've looked at Acts. It's been five weeks, and we kind of need a recap to get off to date. So, previously on Acts. We need to remember that the book of Acts is part of the book of Luke of Acts. Luke and Acts is one book, and it was written by Luke. Luke was a physician from Philippi, and he became a Christian under the ministry of Paul. And as Paul is ministering to the Greek area, Christians uh, began to be found in Rome and Roman provinces and in Greece. And so the question became, why do those of us who live in Greece and Rome care anything about what happened in Jerusalem? Who is this Jesus person? From a Roman perspective, Jesus was a small-town Jewish prophet who got into trouble and was killed. So why do these people from Greece and Rome and the outlying areas, why, do they wanna, why should they care at all about Jesus? And so that's why Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts. The book of Luke is written to tell us who Jesus is. And Luke uses the story of the virgin birth and the magi coming. He uses the stories of miracles and his speech to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the ultimate power of the universe. That's what Romans understood. They understood power. They understood purpose. And so the book of Acts is telling us who Jesus is. And Luke also explains that, yes, Jesus died. But he died for a purpose. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. You see, where the Romans and the Greeks had a misunderstanding is that, yes, Jesus was a small-town Jewish prophet. He didn't have a big play in the world. Yes, he did die. But he didn't stay dead. And so the end of Luke is the story of Jesus being resurrected from from the grave. That's good news. That's the news. Now, the question then becomes is, okay, well, if that's who Jesus did and he rose from the dead, what happened next? What was the result of Jesus' life on earth? Well, that's what the book of Acts tells us. The book of Acts, it tells us that this Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then that news began to go into all of the world 
and change the world. And so in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us the story about how Jesus tells his disciples, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to go into all the world and tell the world about me. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are preaching in the temple, a very Jewish place to teach. In Acts chapter 4, they're preaching, and now they're beginning to get some persecution from the Jewish leaders. The heat's starting to get turned up a little bit. In Acts chapter 5, the church is growing, and Luke wants to show us that not everything is perfect in the church. So we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and being judged. And in the end of chapter 5, again, there's more preaching and more persecution. In Acts chapter 6, we have the story of the appointment of the first servants or deacons. You see, in Acts chapter 6, the church has gotten large enough that they needed some help administrating the church. And so God leads the, the, the apostles to appoint servants. Greek word deacon, we get deacon. And so that's what happens in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 7, we have the story of one of those deacons, Stephen. Stephen preaches a really, really good message and is killed. For that reason, this message is not going to be that good. Then we come to Acts chapter 8. So now let's turn to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What's the big deal? Why does it matter that Philip went to Samaria? Well, chapter 8 is kind of a pivotal chapter in our story of the book of Acts. Because if you remember, Jesus was talking to his disciples in chapter 1. And he specifically tells them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, so far in Acts, everything has been happening in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with the disciples in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and the first church is formed in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3, Philip and John are preaching in the temple in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, there's persecution against them and opposition in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6, they appoint the, the deacons in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 7, where do you think that happens? Jerusalem. Stephen is preaching. So, so far, all this good news is being concentrated in Jerusalem. And that's good. It needed to start there. Jerusalem had a population at that time of about 600,000 people. But the gospel needed to go out. God wanted the gospel to go everywhere. That's why there's persecution. That's why they were scattered. You see, God frequently uses persecution to get us out of our comfort zones. And the word for persecution, or the word for scattered in verse 4 is an interesting word. Luke could have used one of two different words. There's one word for scattered that you would use for, say, 
if you wanted to scatter the ashes of a loved one on the wind or the waves, where something is scattered to be dispersed and never seen again. Luke didn't use that word. Luke used a different word. He used the word that you would use if you are scattering seed in a farm. You scatter the seed with the expectation that it will produce growth. That's the word that is used here. You see, those are scattered and they're preaching the word. And Philip is one of them. Philip is not an apostle. Philip was one of those men who was appointed. He's just a regular guy from Jerusalem. He was a believer. He was from a Greek background, but he was Jewish. That's what it meant for it to be a Hellenistic Jew. And so Philip is led to Samaria. Now, why is Samaria such a big deal? Well, you probably know the story. You know enough about the Bible to know that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Much more than Texans and non-Texans or Texans and Yankees, Jews and Samaritans genuinely did not like each other. There was a great deal of bigotry and prejudice between the two of them. In fact, um, the very first time that Luke talks about the Samaritans, again, remember Luke's writing this whole story, back in in Luke chapter 9, John the Apostle wants to blow the place up. You see, John and James and Jesus had been walking from from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And to get from Galilee, where Jesus was born, and most of the ministry is up here, down to Jerusalem, the easiest way was to go through Samaria. So they went through Samaria. They were preaching the news. They were rejected. And so James and John says, hey, let's just blow this place up. Let's just judge the heck out of them. And... Jesus doesn't do that. But that's because there was the animosity there. Well, where that came from is back about the time of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter uh, 12 tells us the story that when Solomon died, he had two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Those two sons kind of fought over who would be the king. And Jeroboam led a revolt. And so Jeroboam led the northern kingdom. And so after Solomon, the nation of Israel was split in two. Jeroboam led the northern kingdom, this area up here. And they established their own capital city, and they established their own temple place of worship, which was, as you understand, a very bad thing to do. Jerusalem was the capital. The temple was in Jerusalem. So you had this northern kingdom rebelling. They were very much evil and into sin. Well, God sends lots of prophets to warn them. They don't repent. Finally, in 722 B.C., Shalmaneser of the Assyrians comes in, conquers the northern kingdom, and takes them away. Two things happened as a result of that. Number one, the Jews that were taken into Assyria began to intermarry. After all, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. You're all broken up. You're surrounded by different kinds of people. So the Jews and the Assyrians began to intermingle. That was a bad thing. That was specifically prohibited in the Old Testament. The other thing that happened is when Assyria took the Jews out, they still wanted somebody to be able to plow the land and take care of the land, so the Assyrians would bring other conquered nations in. So the people remaining in the area of Samaria were now of a mixed race. And that was a problem. Eventually, once the Assyrians fell and the, the Jews who had been in Assyria began to come back, you had this whole northern area then kind of filled with these people who came from a bad background, had kind of done some bad things, and were still 
outcasts. That is why the Jews and the Samaritans couldn't get along. There was a lot of racial prejudice there. And so for Philip to be going to Samaria is a really big deal. This was, this was huge. You didn't go to the Samaritans. You, you, you left them alone. And yet Jesus had prepared them for that. You know, if you remember, again, in Luke, Luke tells the, uh, relates that Jesus' parable about the good Samaritan. You see, Jesus was preparing his disciples to know the Samaritans need the gospel too. Later on, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he heals ten lepers. One of them comes back to say thanks. Those lepers were from Samaria. So Jesus is preparing his disciples to go to Samaria, but they weren't ready yet. Luke tells us the story of the Samaritans to prepare us for what's going on in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, the gospel crosses borders. And that's one of the first things we need to learn from this section is that the truth about Jesus crosses barriers. We can look at our world and we see all sorts of prejudices and bigotries. You know, we can think about what's happening overseas. We can think about the race difficulties we have here in the United States. You know, there's prejudice and bigotry between black and white, between white and Hispanic, between Hispanic and black. And even in talking about that, I sense there's an uncomfortableness as you hear me say those words. Why? Well, it's because we recognize on the inside that there are divisions and bigotries and prejudices that shouldn't exist. And we want to get rid of them. How do we do that? Well, the answer is right here. What did Philip do? Philip told the truth about Jesus. And he cared for the people that were listening. You see, Philip didn't just preach a gospel of salvation. He also healed them and took care of them. You know, if we're going to begin to move forward in crossing the barrier and breaking down bridges, it's going to come through the preaching and the teaching about Jesus. Everybody needs to know that they are a sinner in the need of a Savior. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter the color of your skin, doesn't matter your cultural background, everybody needs the truth about Jesus. And that's where we can begin. We can begin to be the one who sits at the uncool table at lunch. We can begin to be the one who goes to East Temple or from East Temple to West Temple. That's what Philip did. Philip crossed a huge cultural and racial barrier. He overcame prejudices and bigotry and shared the gospel. And people responded. And that's the joy and the victory of what's happening here. Now the story continues, starting at verse 9, that there was a man named Simon previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus the Messiah, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
So Luke is going to take this story about the gospel crossing the barrier into Samaria, and he's going to focus in on Simon. We're going to see there's a couple of reasons for this. Now, Simon is an interesting character. We understand from the text that Simon was a person who practiced magic. He was a magus. It was the three magi who came to see Jesus. That's where that word comes from. Simon was just like one of the wise men in that he would look at the stars and practice astrology to try to predict the future. He would look at various omens. He would perform illusions and sleight of hands and in the process made himself up to be a rather great person who had power and ability to foresee the future and alter the course of events. That was Simon. Now, remember, this is written to a Roman audience. The Romans would understand that. That's what most of their religious people were like. And so what we have here is a picture of someone who the Romans could identify with. And this person sees Philip and his preaching. And he recognizes, wow, that's the real deal. That's real power. Simon the Amazer was amazed. And as a result, he believed and was baptized. Great story. You've got a believer. This great person. We've got the picture of the story crossing boundaries. We've got the picture of the story reaching the influential. We've got the, 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 the teacher of the story of power speaking to power. Again, God is accomplishing his purposes. The story continues. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I want to stop for a second because I think there's a great irony here that Luke is just kind of telling us. Who goes to Samaria? Peter and John. What happened the last time John was in Samaria? Well, the last time John was in Samaria, the Samaritans didn't believe, and John wanted to blast them out of the sky. I think it's rather ironic that it's John who's coming back to see the fruit of Philip's preaching. Here you had Philip, this layman, having greater fruit than John did. And I think there's just a little bit of irony, a little bit of, hey, this is you know, pretty interesting that John gets to come down here and see what's going on. Now, Peter and John came down for a purpose. They, had to re- they prayed, and in verse 16, for the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now we've got a question. What's going on here? Why is there a distinction between believing, being baptized, and being filled with the Holy Spirit? I thought that the Holy Spirit came the moment you were baptized. Well, that's true. Paul teaches very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that the moment we believe, we are sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, if that's the case, what's going on here? Why did Peter and John have to come and lay on the Holy Spirit? Well, there are some who look at this, and they use this to explain and teach the idea that there's a difference between believing and being filled with the Spirit. That in order to be a true Christian or a first-class Christian, you need to have the Holy Spirit filled within you from a laying on of hands, at which point you demonstrate the ability to speak in tongues or other things like that. Now, that's an interesting idea. And if this is the only passage we had, we might agree with that. But we do have more to this. 
and we can understand what's going on here. It's not because there's two different baptisms. It's not because that there's two different classes of Christians, those who are baptized and those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. No, God is doing something very special here. It's a big deal that the gospel was going from Jerusalem to Samaria. It was a big enough deal that God wanted everyone to know that it's the same gospel, the same Holy Spirit, that faith and salvation is the same no matter where you go. So, in the same way that the original people in Acts chapter 2 received the Holy Spirit, that same event occurs here. It's God's authentication that, yes, it's the same gospel that has now gone to Samaria. Well, how do we know that? Well, because if you turn to Acts chapter 11, or Acts chapter 10 at first, Acts chapter 10 is the story of Peter taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter does the same thing. In verses 44 through 47 of chapter 10, having just spread the, shared the good news about Jesus with a Gentile and they're being baptized, Peter says in verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You see, it was a big deal. It's hard to overcome prejudice and bigotry. It takes some time. And so what God is doing, he's saying, look, I'm going to use that same obvious phenomenon to let everybody know that the gospel is going forth. When Peter, in chapter 11, has to explain what happened with the Gentiles, a number of Jews from Jerusalem said, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why are you baptizing and including Gentiles? Peter says in verse uh, 15 of chapter 11, He's talking, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. In verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You see, this special and obvious outpouring of the Holy Spirit was intended by God to show the entire world, including Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, that we're all one, that there really is no difference. In fact, it comes up one more time, Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, Paul comes back from his first missionary journey. And Paul had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's called to account in Jerusalem. And again, what's going on here? Why are we preaching the gospel to the Gentiles? What's happening? And Peter stands up in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, it says, And thereafter had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now look at what it says in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. See, God recognized that it's a huge culture shift. This is a big change. There's a lot of prejudice and bigotry and condescension going on. And God uses this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to show everybody, to prove to everybody, no. The church is one. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and Samaritan, between any kind of racial divide. You're all one in Christ because you have the same Holy Spirit. 
Same grace, same faith, same Holy Spirit. So let's pick up again in Acts chapter 8. Because something else happens. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't sound right. Are we supposed to want to buy the Holy Spirit? What's the problem here? Well, it's interesting. Every one of us recognizes that what Simon just asked for doesn't sound right. Why do we recognize that? Well, because we recognize that there is a correlation between what we believe and how we act. Being a Christian should look like something. And that's what we're seeing here. You know, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about we are saved by grace. What we mean by that is that God, of his own good favor, has chosen to save us. And that's true. There's nothing we do. We are saved through faith. It's not that we work in any way for our salvation. Our salvation is achieved for us totally because of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. But we need to be careful. Because while we don't need works in order to be saved, our works should reflect the fact that we are saved. That's what James is talking about in James chapter 2. When he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The unstated answer is no. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You believe that God is one. You do well. Congratulations, you believe that God is one. You believe orthodox theology. Wonderful. So does the devil believe and shudder. You see, what James is talking about is exactly what Luke wants us to know. Luke is writing this story for a purpose. He wants us to recognize, now wait a minute. We need to be careful about what we say when we say we believe. What does saving belief, what does saving faith look like? It's more than just an intellectual assent to a series of facts. Saving faith is a faith that trusts. Saving faith looks like That's why we sang the song, Trust and Obey. Trusting and obeying always go together, if it's true trust. Let me give you an example. That Texan that I went to visit in San Antonio, I began to realize that I kind of liked her a lot. Um, Realized that I wanted her, you know, as a girlfriend, I I loved her. And I definitely was the one to pursue her. It was about eight or nine months before I could convince her to go out on a date with me. But I remember the time when I could tell from her actions that she loved me. And she said, I love you. And I thought, oh, that's great. Wow, that's exciting. I felt really good. She loves me. And then I got up the next morning and I wondered, well, does she still love me? That was yesterday. What did I do to screw it up? 
And as time goes by, if you've ever been in that kind of a relationship, you realize, yes, I know there's a relationship there, but where's it going? Where's the relationship going? Well, then the time came that we were going to be engaged. And I realized that she had lo- I loved her. I had convinced her to love me. And so I asked for her hand in marriage. And now we're engaged. Now we're committed. She had to wear my ring in Philadelphia and proclaim off-limits to all the other guys. I didn't have to wear a ring. That's just how it goes. And now we're engaged. Now we're committed. But we're still not married. You see, it's not until you walk down the aisle and you make that promise before God to one another and before all the witnesses where you promise I do. I do what? I do promise to love you forever, to never leave you till death do us part. It is you and you alone. That promise, now you're married. Something changes. That's what saving faith looks like. Saving faith is more than just saying, I love God. Saving faith is more than just saying, yep, I believe all these facts about God. Saving faith is a commitment of all of yourself to all that you know of God. That's what it takes. And see, that's what Simon is going to learn here. Because Peter's going to point that out in verse uh, 21, starting in verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Truth about Jesus unmasks our motives. And Simon needed his motives unmasked. Now, it's an interesting question of, is Simon a believer or not? Is Simon what today we would call Christian? On one hand, you can say that he is. He did believe, and that word for believe is used of all the other people who believe. He was baptized, so he did seem to have some sort of outward evidence. He is rebuked by Peter. But even in Peter's rebuke, where he says, you have no part of the ministry, well, that's what Jesus said to Peter when Peter had kind of misunderstood things. Peter repented. So perhaps this is a warning to Simon, and Luke includes it for us to remind ourselves, look, as a Christian, you need to grow. There are going to be some things that you need to do and not do. You need to to explore your motives. You need to see what walking with Jesus looks like. Absolutely, Simon could be a believer or could be a Christian. On the other hand, is Simon a Christian? Well, you know, he believes, but everything else about him tends to say no. I mean, who's a Christian and tries to, who teaches the Holy Spirit like an it as opposed to a he? He's told to repent. And even at the end, he doesn't really repent. He just says, Simon, you pray for me. So what is it? Is Simon a believer? Is Simon a Christian or not? You know, Luke doesn't tell us. And I think it's because Luke doesn't know. Luke can know the heart of man except God. And it really doesn't matter whether Luke thinks he's a Christian. It really doesn't matter whether I think he's a Christian. The truth and the warning remains the same. Why do we come to Jesus? You know, Simon came to Jesus because he liked the power. He was attracted by the power and the amazement and the miracles. If Simon was here, 
Would Simon come to TBC because he likes the fellowship? Because he's lonely and wants the company? Simon have a struggling marriage and wants his marriage fixed? Is Simon struggling with his kids and he wants Jesus to fix his family? Simon's sick and wanting healing? None of those things are bad. But it's a difference between coming to Jesus because of what you get out of it and coming to Jesus because you recognize, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Two different things. Simon needed to recognize you don't follow Jesus because of what you can get out of it. You follow Jesus because of who he is. Well, the story continues in verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go on that south road from Jerusalem to Gazer, you know, the desert road. And so here we can see the geography again. Jerusalem is here. Samaria is here. This is where Philip has been. Now he's going to go from Jerusalem south, which is a very interesting way to build churches. You take the guy who's responsible for this great church plant in Samaria, and what do you do? You take him out of his successful church plant, and you put him on a desert road where he's going to meet somebody one-on-one. Not necessarily in the textbooks. But God has something else in mind. He wants him to meet an Ethiopian. Now, this Ethiopian is an interesting character. We understand from the text that the Ethiopian was a Jewish proselyte. He was in Jerusalem, most likely during the time of the Passover. The events of Acts chapter 8 are occurring somewhere between six and nine months after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, it is highly likely that the Ethiopian was in Jerusalem at the Passover where Jesus is crucified, and rose from the dead. He's now on his way back home. He's in a chariot, and he's reading. God, through the Holy Spirit, takes Philip, and he puts him next to this Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian just happens to be reading Isaiah 53. The passage, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away? So Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, well, no. How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And in the back of Philip's mind, you can see this light going off. Aha, this is why I'm here. And so Philip explains to him. And it says, and Philip opened all of scriptures to explain what's going on. So what did the Ethiopian believe? Well, if he was reading Isaiah, we have a pretty good idea of what he understood. Because Isaiah tells us about God in his holiness. It tells us about man in his sinfulness. Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah, the suffering Savior. And so he puts all this together, and you can just see Philip. See, now you understand all this now. Remember that Jesus guy you saw? That's this guy. That guy you saw and heard about in Jerusalem? That's this guy. That is this Jesus. And the Ethiopian responds in belief and is baptized. What an amazing story. Why is it here, though? Why is one person's story of salvation so important that Luke wants to include it? Well, where's Ethiopia? Ethiopia in the New Testament is not the Ethiopia that we think of today. Ethiopia was the southern border of the end of the earth. 
You see, the truth about Jesus will go to the ends of the earth. Nothing's going to stop it. And here in Acts chapter 8, we see God's prophecy, Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1 being fulfilled. It's gone to Jerusalem. It's now in Judea and Samaria. And in fact, through the Ethiopian, it's going to go literally to the southern border of the end of the earth. New Testament Ethiopia was southern Egypt, northern Sudan. You couldn't get any farther south. The North African church, we know from history, was a vibrant place of the word of God. The Ethiopians were a solid church for centuries. The church in Alexandria was a center of Christian learning. And one of the greatest theologians of all time, St. Augustine, was from North Africa. Likely, in some form or another, a fruit of this Ethiopian eunuch going back to where he came We wouldn't understand, Calvin wouldn't be Calvin, Luther wouldn't be Luther if it weren't for Augustine. They didn't say anything new, they just repeated what Augustine said. And who was Augustine? A North African Christian. An eventual fruit of this Ethiopian. You see, the truth about Jesus will go to the ends of the earth. The question is, why are we here? Why am I here? Why are you here? Are we here at TBC because we're crossing a barrier or because we want to avoid crossing? Are we here at TBC because we like the trappings of Christianity? We like the friends, we like the comfort, we like the people we hang out with. We're hoping that it'll fix our marriage, fix our kids, fix our health. Or are we here because we worship the risen Jesus? Are we here because we were sent here? Or because we were, are preparing to be sent somewhere else? Or are we here because it's more comfortable to stay here? See, God is on a mission. We talk about mission at TBC. We talk about being fully surrendered. That's what Simon needed to learn, the lesson of being fully surrendered to the person of Jesus. Not because you get something out of it, but because you worship the risen Savior. We talk about community, and here the Holy Spirit is coming to form a larger community. Because you do this as community, we talk about mission. And what this passage in Acts is telling us is a triumphal story. It's the story that God will build his church. None of the events that are going on, nothing that's happening in Russia, China, Indonesia, nothing that's happening in the United States, Texas, or Temple is going to stop God from accomplishing the process of building his church. The question is, why am I here? Where will you be next year at this time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us of your victories. We, we thank you that your truth crosses borders, crosses racial borders, cultural borders, geographic boundaries. Lord, we just thank you for the victories, and we look forward to what you're going to do through each and every one of us as we come to walk with you better and know you more. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen.